All right, and welcome back to the bike, the Bice Pirates. Who is that? Pirates. Welcome, welcome back, Bice Pirates. We Bice Pirates. We talk games. My name Hans. These are my co-hosts Sven and Andre. Uh, okay. I get to be Sven. I want to be Sven. No, you're not Sven. Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back with episode 24, and we are celebrating the one-year anniversary of the release of this podcast. One year ago, we decided to start this podcast. We released our first episode, and we've really enjoyed the process. It's been a lot of fun. I'm joined, of course, by Matt and Aaron. Guys, it's the one-year anniversary. This is super awesome. I've really enjoyed this year getting to talk about board games with you guys. That's right. One year ago today, uh, we sat down around a table with poor audio quality and a heart full of nerves, and we put out a podcast, by golly, and we've just kept on doing it against all odds and, frankly, our own better judgment. And here we are today, still talking about board games, and we are have marginally better audio quality and slightly better organizational skills. And gosh, you know what? I think we should be proud of ourselves. It's definitely gotten better over time. Some of the... I, I'm proud of everything we put out, but some of the early episodes were honestly absolutely terrible audio quality, and it hurts to go back and listen to them well, now. So. You know, we recorded it largely using two cans of Chef Boyardee ravioli and a long string, and in hindsight, that was bad judgment. I mean, the the main problem with the early episodes is that you hadn't had me on yet. Yeah, we had not yet summoned Aaron from the fourth dimension where he resides uh, when he's not with us. Uh, he is an imp. We've never really elaborated on that. He is an imp from uh, the uh, one of the ninth circles, but he's a very benign imp for the most part. So I'm actually curious as to just over the past year, what's a favorite moment or episode that you guys had? Because for me personally, I think the episode that I've enjoyed the most has actually been our deep dive into Dune. Dune is one of my favorite games and still is, but I actually really enjoyed getting to really dive into the history of the game and really learn where it came from, the history of it, how it stayed alive over all these years of being out of print, the way that the community kept it alive. I think that was one of the most fun episodes that we did, even though it was so long ago. I just loved getting to really learn everything about a game and get to bring that out. That was a lot of fun. It was a real, that is that's a it's a classic game. My favorite thing about the story of Dune and what you brought up as we talked about it was how the fans really kept that game alive for a long time when it was out of print, and uh, but the passion around that game and people still playing it and doing print and play versions of it kept that game that beloved game alive uh, for gosh years and years until Gale Force Nine brought it back just recently. So that was a cool thing that just showed you how innovative and cool the board game community is. Uh, I think I have two favorite episodes. Uh, I have one that I'm probably most proud of is our Fantasy Flight Games deep dive. And that was when we were all three involved. It's the closest we've ever come to real action, actual journalism, a well-researched <laughs> look at, at, a, at a company that I personally really love. It was far and away our most popular episode, and it was wild watching that go kind of viral by our standards. And I'm, I think that was a great uh, little bit of analysis and reporting and that one's pretty good. That's like a best of the dice pirates. Absolutely, that was a, that was a great episode to be in on and and just to to really show up and we'd all 
done so much homework, you know, and and it I I think it came through, and I think it it really connected with people. The other episode that I still really love is an early one that we did, which is the history of the dungeon crawlers, just because that's a genre of game that I absolutely love. It's not the deepest uh, or most complex genre. Uh, it's maybe even somewhat maligned a little bit, but I love it. I love fantasy stuff. I love crawling through a dungeon fighting monsters. And it was fun to look back at the old games in that. I still think about uh, some of the early 1970s dungeon crawls that came out that were basically just little like cardboard chits that you'd punch out and how simple the components were and how much people loved those games and still love them and then i look at something like massive darkness and how overproduced it is by comparison and realize man board games have changed but uh anyway that was a fun episode too those were all those are definitely ones i really enjoyed what about you aaron do you have a favorite moment that you remember i do i do uh my my favorite episode my favorite part of, of an episode i actually didn't even get to be there for it but i i enjoyed it so much was uh the interview that you guys did with jamie stegmeyer on the episode that we did about kickstarter and you know kind of its its effects on the industry uh it was it was really cool to have someone on who actually legitimately knew what they were talking about and wasn't just kind of bolleviating based on 10 minutes of, of Googling like we so often do. He really kind of was able to, to educate us and, and you know, hopefully our listeners on the, the complexities and the intricacies of Kickstarter. And it was just, I mean, it's, it's Jamie Stegmeier. Like, come on, that's just, that's exciting by itself. That was amazing. Actually, uh, my favorite like moments across the board were all of our guests, and I guess now would be as good a time as any to just thank all of the special guests that joined us in the first year of the show. It, it was about halfway through the run we decided that, what if we just didn't talk all the time? We brought in smart people to talk with us, and that paid off big time because some of our best moments were when we did that. And uh, meeting J Jamie Stegmeier, at least virtually, and talking was fantastic. He was so accessible and willing to give us a shot, uh, giving, give us some of his time. But I also really enjoyed our conversations with some of our fellow content creators. Uh, you know, Harry from When Harry Met Games, talking about fantasy adventure stuff. Carly from Gnarly Carly Games, who was so fun and cool and willing to call me out on my ridiculous take on dice games. Although I was right, I think history will be on my side. I appreciate that she was willing to to, 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 to punch back a it little won't. bit. It, it will. Uh, it will. Uh, there's uh, our good friend Epic Jim breaking down uh, all the intricacies of what it's like to be a dungeon master. And, of course, uh, our friend Lily from Play It Solo who uh, came on to talk solo games, but just immediately classed up the joint with her intellect and humor and really can't thank her enough because she was one of the earliest uh, Instagrammers to give us some attention and a shout out on her account, totally unsolicited. Uh, she's the best. And if you're not following Lily, you're just missing out. You should be doing that. Look for Play It Solo. She still is one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram. The posts that she makes are really well thought out and she does talk about a, a lot of really interesting games and some games that I didn't even know you could play solo. So yeah, absolutely. Thanks to everybody who's come on the podcast. It's been really fun to get to meet people. So I actually wanted to do a little bit of a throwback. It's something that we kind of stopped after the first couple episodes, but I wanted to just kind of throw back to that and do what you've been playing. 
You know, it's something we, we stopped because we started doing the soapbox, and I've really enjoyed that. But since we aren't going to talk about a ton of games this episode, I just want to ask you guys, what have you been playing lately? What's What's been coming onto your table? Well, I've been playing, uh, actually just played this past weekend, uh, Tammany Hall from Pandasaurus Games. We just have, we got a post up on it on the Dice Pirates account. Our uh, our good buddy Max uh, wrote up a, a, a nice review, and you could get I think his thoughts really kind of speak for the group. But my two cents is really liked it, really fun, a surprisingly thematic area control game. It deals subject matter wise uh, with a complex period a less than savory period in U.S. history, turn of the century New York politics and the Tammany Hall era. If you've uh, seen the movie Gangs of New York and its depiction of kind of the conflict between different immigrant groups in New York at that time, it's that same time period. It's that same sort of conflict, but at a higher level, more political than street-level fighting. But that thing of uh, courting favor from the different immigrant groups and using them and, frankly, exploiting them as a part of the game, it does its best, I think, to do that sensitively for it, it could have been handled uh, much more clumsily. And there is a little bit of information, a little information sheet in the game that kind of talks about the historical context of what you're playing. And they even donate uh, some of the proceeds of the game to a research center about fair and free elections. So I, I do think Pandasaurus to their credit knew that this was a sensitive topic, but did the right thing by addressing it and handling it. And I think as we've seen this year, so many uh, board game designers are not doing the right thing. I won't belabor it. It's a fun little area control game uh, that simulates trying to gain power the very and become mayor of New York. The very best thing about it, the wildest thing about it, is that if you become mayor, that's great for you. You score some sweet victory points, but now you have to actually assign all of your opponents an office in the city, which gives them a really... A powerful asymmetrical ability that they can use in the next round and the stress of realizing that yay i won mayor and now i have to make somebody the council president or the police chief and they're gonna have all these wild abilities that are gonna completely change the game uh that's remarkable this is one of the few games that i think it's an absolute must that you play it at the max player count so that every city office will be in play each round really well done recommend that you give it a look this is a game that when you posted about it, I actually am very excited to play because yeah, I mean, I love asymmetric powers. It's really cool that they change. It sounds super exciting. I have actually been replaying some Charterstone lately with some good friends of ours that, and we've actually been playing the digital version, which has been very fun. I don't want to go into it too deep. We're definitely going to talk about this game at some other point. I do want to dive into legacy games in another episode, but I've actually been really enjoying it. The digital version is super well put together. It's very fun. The music is kind of amazing, surprisingly so. And I also just find uh, with a lot of legacy games, you wonder, will you enjoy it as much the second time through? Well, is it, is there like replayability there? And I actually find that the more I play Charterstone, the more I enjoy it. This is my third time going through the main campaign of the game and i actually still really enjoy the game it's very fun and you know it's nice good memories too because that was the the first game we played together as a board game group so it's always nice to go back and revisit that yeah i love charter storm was a ton of fun that was a at the time i don't know that i uh appreciated how good it was uh and looking back at it in hindsight i realized that was a really solid legacy game i played other legacy games that i didn't hold together for me over the course of like the leg of the campaign, like we played the Scythe Legacy campaign, and 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 my interest in that kind of trailed off at the end. But Charterstone, looking back on it, I realized that really held my attention 
and made me feel like the journey was worth it. It's a really fantastically made just little game. There's a lot to love about it. And the process of building your town and progressively getting more things to do. It's just, it's super well put together. Of course, we are going to talk about it at some other point. I just, I have really been enjoying that. And I'm looking forward to getting to talk about that in depth because I I really do love that little game. Aaron, what have you been playing lately? So I recently uh, played for the first and then immediately second and third time a, it's, it's, technically like a kids and family game called battle sheep i love battle sheep it's such a fun game it it's always a fun treat for me when you're playing a game that is you know like nominally intended for children and then adults play it and it becomes so cutthroat and like you're legitimately worried that a fist fight is going to break out around the table if you're not familiar with the game it's it's such a brilliant little design Everyone builds the board together. So you get four little tiles that have four hexes and a little diamond configuration. And everyone takes, they put one down and you can kind of make one big landmass. You can make holes, little pathways going around. And then you have a stack of like 16 sheep tokens. And on your turn, you take any number of them. You can't move all of them, but you take any number of them. And they go in a straight line to the other edge of the board, wherever that. Until happens. they hit other people, or they hit yeah. the side of the board. Yeah, yeah. either the, the edge of the board or, or another player. And then you just keep doing that. You take any of your stacks that are still on the board. You always have to leave one, and you just move them around. And your goal is to play out all of your sheep. And we played, like we. Everyone else had played it but me, so we played the first time, and then I was immediately like, okay, well, now that I know what I'm doing, I definitely need to play this again. And then at the end of the night, we were like, well, we I, we gotta we gotta keep going. Uh, I never once, actually none of us ever successfully played out all of our sheep, because it was just so cutthroat and so devious. It was, it was all about, how can I cut you off and box <laughs> you in so you end up with, like, five sheep that you can't place? Yeah, no, that was, you know, they, 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 they brought out the box, they opened it up, they were explaining it to me, and I was like, okay, guys, if this is what everyone wants to play. <laughs> and then halfway through that first game, I was like, oh, dang, a knife fight is going to happen at this table. It sounds like Suro with sheep. Is that like a fair comparison, a little it's, bit? I would say that Battle Sheep is more of an area control game, whereas... I guess you could argue that Suro is in some ways, but Battleship really is an area control game where you're trying to take over sections of the board. It's kind of like Go to a certain extent, mm. where where you're trying to control an area of the board and you're trying to box people in, and getting to move back and forth allows you to make sweeping movements where you surprise somebody. So there is similarities where it's super fast, but there's also a surprising amount of strategy, and people can sneak up on you and... There's actually, I, I, I love this game. I'm glad that you brought this up because I think this is a must-have for anybody it, like in their board game collection. If you have young kids, they can play it. But also, it's a super, super quick game. You can play the whole game in less than five minutes. And if you just want something fun to play with people that actually can get pretty intense, I think it's a perfect game. Yes, it was, it was amazing. I loved it. And it also... Again, it, wow. it got it got real heated. It was great. Wow, that's a that's a quite a quote. That's a quite a pull quote for the box. A perfect game. 
Ian, Dice Pirates. I mean, you heard her first, folks. Battlesheep. Perfect game. I, I, I do think this is actually just one of the better better games that I've played. I, I'm I looking at it, yeah, now that I see the hexagonal tiles and stuff at the Suro comparison, but the movement toward the edge or colliding with another player kind of made me think Suro, but yeah, it looks like a different, a totally different feel. But still that kind of minimalist uh, board game thing of just like a real simple to set up and play game. Those are great. You know, a game that takes minutes to learn and you can just play for hours. That's Those are wonderful. So I do actually want to have a game with you guys. Instead of some of our normal games, I kind of want to do some Dice Pirates trivia. We've had some fun moments over the last year. There's been some really cool moments, and I just kind of want to see how much of it you guys remember. Oh, man, I remember everything vividly. It's all seared upon my brain. I'm going to say uh, Matt is going to remember maybe. I'm going to be generous and say 10%. We'll have to see. That's real real harsh. That's That was, that was very underestimating. <laughs> All right, so one of the things that we did do early on is that I used to give Matt a new title every episode, and it got increasingly more uh, defacing. He I missed moved that. from the first mate to the gunner to the cabin boy. But do you remember the last title that you were given? Uh, Able Seaman. That is not it. Dang it. The the last time that I remember, I, the last time I commented on it was you just called me the ever present, and I was like, that's officially the lowest. Like, no, don't have a title. <laughs> I'm just a, the ever present Matt, and I was like, that's just like that's nothing. That's that's not even a title. The guy that we can't get rid of. I mean, it's an accurate title, but the last title that I did officially give you was actually in episode 17, where I called you the Hammock Tester. Yeah, I do remember that, the Hammock Tester. Um, yeah. I still remember the glory days when I was briefly captain for an episode or so. That was, uh, I didn't exploit that enough. I should have imposed some rules and some structure, possibly renamed the show. Uh, the the Matt experience with Ian and Aaron, uh, I think was, it would have been a really good title. Matt, Matt explosion, um, you know, Mattapedia. There's really a lot of really good titles that I could have explored. That I'm you are. Out. You're really good at this naming thing. You should probably work in like social media or marketing or something. You got a knack for this. I got a knack for it. I'm I'm the mapster. Aaron, do you do you happen to know what the first episode with a cold open was? Because there have been some of those. I always like when we have a little moment. But do you remember what the first one was? I feel like I feel like the first one was before my time. Uh, and since I wasn't on it, I obviously have never listened to it. Uh, oh, so now, gonna... now wow. it's coming out. Wow. Now it's coming out. So yeah. I'm going to take a shot, and then I'm going to say episode six. Ooh, that is not right. Matt, do you remember? The first episode with a cold open? Um, was it, uh, did you cold open when I was, like, going off on my rant about how Wingspan should be called Bird God? Okay, so that was the second cold open that we did. The uh, first oh, so cold close. open was actually episode two. Uh-huh. When we did our sound check, you broke into an impromptu rap, and it was glorious. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I regret it now. No, I don't. It was probably really good. <laughs> what are the odds I could recreate it if I like really thought about it? I think it's, I think it's pretty low. <laughs> I, think, I think it's probably pretty good. Uh, it was like, when I come correct, I come with my crew. That's how it ended. I remember that part. <laughs> that was, that's that was exactly how, what she said. That was exactly, I never remember that part. 
because I did a little <laughs> I did a little hand gesture that I just once again recreated that the audience can't uh, see. This was also back when we I mean when we started recording we were recording with two lapel mics in the same room. Yeah, there was just a weird there was a weird energy when we were doing this and I could just like look you in your eye and and just really see into your soul. It's see different the disappointment now. Disappointment evident in in my every move. Yeah, was, that was weird. It was very very different. Okay. Here's a fun one for you guys. Which episode had the most games? Which episode did we talk about the most games? I think I know. I, I'm i going to guess Dungeon Crawlers. I have two guesses. I have two guesses. It's one of two. It is either uh, it is either when Lily was on for Solo Games Part 2, or it was when Carly was on, Gnarly Carly was on for uh, Cooperative Games. Uh, one of those two was definitely the most. Okay, so... I do believe that the second most games that we ever talked about was with Lily, but the first, the top number of games that we ever talked about was actually the very first episode. A little bit of a trick question here. We talked about five, ten games total. We both had a top five. And just to kind of wrap this up, how many of your top five games do you remember, Matt? Hmm. Okay, let's see if I can do it. Because I I did not remember my top five. I, I, I was completely lost on some of them. Okay. My number one game I know was like wildly uh, Descent because I hadn't yet made peace in my heart to how much I really love uh, that other game that I swore I wouldn't mention on the show anymore. So my first game was Descent. Uh, I talked about I talked about Castles of Burgundy for sure because I absolutely love Castles of Burgundy. Um, what else did I talk about? Man, now I am struggling. These are all my favorite games. I talked about Dead of Winter, I think, because that was I think it's one of my all-time favorite games. And, uh, man, why am I blanking so hard on my own, like, top five of games? It's surprisingly hard. I could only think of two that I, that I put in there, did I put Did I put in Twilight Imperium as one of my all-time, as one of my top five? You did not. That's actually something we talked about. You removed it because we both wanted to talk about it another time, and it just didn't make the cut. You didn't make the cut. Also, you just don't, you don't end up playing it that much, you know, like, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Did I put Blood Rage down as one of my favorite games? You did not put Blood Rage. So the three that you missed, of course, you had Descent, you uh-huh. had Dead of Winter, uh-huh. Lords of Waterdeep. Oh, yeah? Castles of Burgundy. Uh-huh. Clans of Caledonia. Clans of Caledonia. That's a pretty solid. I think I would probably uh, uh, I think I would probably still defend that as a, as, a, as a five favorite games. I still can't ever truly pin down a top five. The only one that I think would probably, if I'm, I would probably say that Roombound, the game that I swore I never would mention, but I just did it. Roombound's got to creep in there. Uh, I didn't realize how much I loved that game until we played it cooperatively. It's a great game cooperatively. It, that totally that was a game changer. Once we played it with the cooperative expansion, I was like, dang, okay, that one's definitely in. It's a great game. So just like as kind of the last question I have, and this isn't trivia related, but I would just like to know, and this counts for you too, Aaron, is there a game that you played in the past year? It didn't even have to come out this past year, but has your list of top games changed? Is there a game that you've played in the past year that just blew you away and you now consider it one of your favorite games? Just say Onk. You know you want to say it. <laughs> I, I I do want to say Ankh, but I feel like I mean I've only gotten like three plays in, and I just I need to I need to spend more time with it to to say for sure. Um, I'm I'm looking through on my phone of all the games that I've played. 
Oh, does Aaron keep a weird, meticulous list of all the games he's played dating back years and years? You know it. VG stats. It's in the App Store. You know it. Did I recently say to Aaron, remember that time I beat you in uh, oh King gosh. Domino? And he <laughs> went to his phone, pulled it out, and said, actually, uh, <laughs> actually, my brother uh, Ben won that game. And I said, how dare you, sir? Wow. How historical, dare you? Historical accuracy is important. So I think for me, a game that I actually played this past year that I think I would actually put up there um, and probably bump one of these out is actually Draftosaurus. We played that recently, and it's actually become one of my wife and I's favorite games to play together. It's just, and also I love bringing it to people. It's super easy to teach. It's really fun. And it takes kind of the best aspects, I think, of like Sushi Go and a lot of other like drafting games like that and matchmaking games. And it distills into this super tight fun colorful game super fun i love that game i play it a lot it's one of my favorite games i have uh i had a few new games that i played this year that would strongly rival anything in my top five i think uh since we did that in the years since we've been doing this podcast uh one is uh spirit island just a tremendous cooperative game so ridiculously thematic so complex and but in a satisfying way to like learn it and play it talked about it at length on the cooperative games episode so i won't say too much more but just absolutely love it if you like co-op if you want something that is just the perfect blend of like theme and gameplay spirit island is fantastic lost ruins of arnak i've only played it a couple of times just played that finally after all the hype and seeing it on instagram all year we finally picked up a copy and played it and i still can love lost ruins of arnak it is the same thing of like a really compellingly thematic game there's just something about going out and exploring a location having a monster or guardian appear that you then have to contend with and there's this tension of like oh i gotta gather up the resources that i need to deal with this. I've never seen a worker placement game like that to where you have these surprise elements and then you have to pivot your strategy to have to mitigate that. And you're, and it's so, uh, it's just really good. Super fun. I actually hope that we do a review episode and talk about Lost Ruins of Arnak. And then the final game that I played this year that uh, has crept into my personal top five, uh, just because of how much I love the theme and the art and everything about it was Escape the Dark Castle from Themeborn. Mm, that's a good one. Uh, just a, fun super simple thematic little dungeon crawler my well documented love of the dungeon stuff so obviously that one was gonna that one was gonna resonate with me even if it was pretty mediocre but i'm happy to say it's not mediocre it's actually very good we are going to go ahead and move on to our main discussion we're just going to kind of wrap up kind of the last year what we saw what we were surprised about and then we're going to move in we're going to throw our predictions out for the next year we're going to get into that in just a minute we'll be right back All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic this week, which is essentially the state of board games. Uh, We thought that after a year of talking about the hobby from a variety of different angles, from uh, individual games to genres and styles and publishers and all sorts of different uh, ways that we've looked at the hobby, we thought for our big one-year anniversary, we would just kind of... uh, Take a, an assessment of things. What do we think about what's going on with the hobby of board games, and where do we think the hobby is going? Uh, board games have never been bigger. Uh, the hobby is more popular and uh, more in demand than it's ever been, but that raises a lot of interesting questions. Things are changing. Games are changing, and the culture around them is changing. So it 
So it feels like a good kind of uh, jumping off point for a wide-ranging discussion, and uh, we'll kick it off. I think we we have seen a rise in something that, that I think would make a really interesting episode on its own. Uh, games that use a phone, tablet, computer, whatever, to augment the game itself. Yeah. You know, specifically, even more focusing on, on ones that require, you know, it's not just a an optional thing to help you play the game, but it's it's a required and necessary part. Instead of having to ship a 10-pound spiral-bound book of encounter logs that you know or yeah that like a like a choose your own adventure if you take the left path go to page 246 uh and taking that and just kind of reducing it into just a thing you can put on your phone and bring with you and allowing that to you know not not just not just take away from the the mental part of of having to track all those things but allowing the game to remember things you've done and react to them uh, in a way that I, I think is, is really interesting. I understand, you know, there, there are a lot of people who have a lot of strong feelings about that as a design choice. I personally think a lot of those people are curmudgeons. Uh, I think it's, it's very exciting to see the sorts of things that are possible in the tabletop space because designers are choosing to, to use all of the tools that they have available to them. I, I think this is, is only makes sense. I do. I alternate between feeling curmudgeonly and excited about it. Uh, I have played app driven games that I thought the app added a lot to it. And, you know, I've had experiences where I didn't like it. I have serious qualms about the idea of games that require it. I like the idea of the app as a supplement or a, uh, a mode like you can play it, uh, you know, a game that has a, a hybrid one versus all and then a cooperative mode that uses an app because I get really worried about games that could get abandoned by developers in a way that like we've experienced in video games, but we've never really had that in a board game. Like, oh, this board game's unplayable now because the app stopped updating. That would be a real bummer. But I also feel like it's it's the logical outpouring of the fact that we're all sitting around the table with devices in our hands. Of course, uh, you know, of course, designers are going to try to figure out how to incorporate those devices, and it opens up so many narrative opportunities. That's where I finally land and decide that I like it. Uh, story story driven games are my favorite. Games that create incredible narrative moments are my favorite things that can happen around a table. And so when you think about an app that can enhance the narrative with music and in deeper storytelling and choices and branching paths that go beyond just, like you said, a traditional adventure book, that's where it gets really cool to me. So I think apps are not going anywhere, and I actually think over time they'll get better, but I do think we'll have some... My prediction is that it, maybe not next year, but in the coming years, we'll have some real bummer stories of like, you know... A board, a major board game will ship with a broken app that, and it's like unplayable out of the box, like a uh, video game that needs a patch, and that's going to be like a totally weird thing that we've never really had to deal with in the board game hobby. That is not uncommon in the video game world, right? A day one patch, uh, there'll be a broken and unplayable board game, and that'll be a weird thing. That is going to be a really bizarre moment. I hope it doesn't happen, but I mean, you're right. It's like inevitably it's going to happen at some point and I'm sure to get patched, but that is definitely 
something that's going to be interesting to see. Kind of dovetailing off that, though, I think it's been really interesting this past year to see how popular role-playing games, and especially, like, tabletop role-playing games have been. Especially, I mean, considering that this past year, a lot of us were stuck at home, and, you know, we really didn't have the opportunity to go out. It's still amazing to me how much these games have been selling, how much money a lot of these games have raised on Kickstarter. I mean, the Avatar... RPG alone raised just shy of $10 million. It's crazy. There's been so many new ones coming out. We talked about a, a bunch of them. There's been, I mean, it's, it's great. I'd love to see it, but I definitely did not see role-playing games becoming this big, but also just becoming this big this past year. It's been really neat to see. I'm the rec- I'm the, I'm the requisite old dude in the group, uh, some decades older than my uh, peers here. And it is bizarre to no end to me to in my lifetime have seen dungeons and dragons go from possibly the nerdiest thing you could do like truly like if in high school it got out that you played dungeons and dragons you were going to be physically assaulted let's be clear it's still one of the nerdiest things you can do i don't actually think so i think it's gone from in our lifetime being one of the nerdiest things you can do to a borderline mainstream thing like groups of high-functioning adult people in our society are getting together to pretend to be dwarves and tieflings and, and fight dragons. And that's just a thing that people do now. Uh, there are videos online of like major celebrities like Vin Diesel playing D&D. With, like, it, it's, it's gone mainstream. I don't think you can underestimate how an impressive a feat Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition has been. Simplifying that complex game, making it feel accessible... And then podcasts and video casts of people playing the game, putting the spotlight on it and making everyone realize, oh, this isn't as weird as I always thought it was. It's a lot more fun. It's funny. It's silly. It's dramatic. Uh, yeah, uh, role-playing games have gone basically mainstream, and that's a weird state of affairs to be in. You know, I love Dungeons & Dragons, but at the end of the day, it is a bunch of adults sitting at a table playing cops and robbers. But, like... That's uh, part of what makes it so good is it's just yeah. it's, it's reliant on everyone's cooperative storytelling ideals and I mean you know well you know I we've think we've definitely it... come far from the satanic panic days. Well, you know the game is uh fifth edition is a really great piece of game design because it uh, stripped out most of the of the most obtuse and complex rules and made the game like story forward in a way that I think earlier editions wasn't if you follow the history of Dungeons and Dragons the fourth edition leaned heavily into it almost becoming like a board game which is funny to think that that didn't really catch on amongst board gamers I mean you had to sit down with a minis and a map and a handful of cards and like it was very tactical and crunchy but it's also just really rules heavy and complex and fighty yeah and uh modern D&D is much more uh you can tailor it to your experience more and the but D and D's just scratching the surface. I mean, role playing games have gotten so complex and interesting. There are niche uh, titles uh, simulating everything from uh, space adventures to you know complex adult relationships to map making and lonely space voyages. I mean, the world of like indie uh, role playing games is rich and complex and interesting. And I would highly recommend you go down the rabbit hole. But yeah, I think the 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 growing popularity of role-playing is something that's really interesting to watch. One of the things I think we have seen, some of the biggest releases of this past year were cooperative games. Spirit Island being one of the biggest ones. We had a whole episode with 
Gnarly Carly, where we did talk about a lot of these games that have been really popular now. And talking about tabletop games, talking about RPGs, people are enjoying working together. Gloomhaven and Frosthaven, while they can be competitive, I just think you are going to see a lot more cooperative games coming out that are going to be really big and really popular. I can definitely see that. I mean, cooperative games are uh, just a great way to get a group of people together and have a fun time together. I think competition is actually, and, and people having a bad night because they're either highly competitive or can be a sore loser. I think some of those th- elements are uh, things that keep people from playing board games. I still say that everyone who says they don't like board games has a bad game of Monopoly somewhere in their past. That's uh, I stand by that statement. And cooperative board games are just a great way to bring people into the hobby without that, you know, that barrier of entry of like, you don't have to worry about feeling salty or leaving with hurt feelings. Uh, we're all going to win or lose together. And that's really, really fun. My prediction uh, for the year ahead, uh, amongst other things, uh, is that solo games are going to become even more ubiquitous. I think we're going to see more solo-only titles coming out. And I think that most major... I think most major releases are going to, by standard, have a solo mode. Uh, 2020 and 2021 both, I think, have seen uh, solo gaming go from being like a a niche but passionate part of the hobby to being almost, on some days it feels like almost like the way most people are playing. Solo gaming is, solo board gaming has gone from like something that seems a little odd in people's mind, like saying I went to a movie by myself, to just being like one of the main ways that people play it. And I think that's been really interesting to watch. I think the obvious correlation there is the fact that a great many people spent a lot of time in their homes, sadly, over the course of a rough 2020. But people have been playing solo games even before that. There's just something relaxing and fun about getting lost in your favorite game by yourself, being able to play at your own pace, being able to indulge in the game's story and and mechanics in a more leisurely way. Um, Yeah. I think that's going to continue to grow. It's really exciting to see these sweeping changes as people do start to notice things that you maybe are missing more often. That's similar to something I think we are going to see more of this next year as well. We've talked about it a bit, you know, in various soapboxes and on the news, you know, from Elizabeth Hargrave calling out questionable art to various publishers and you know board game insert companies that are having to call it quits or leaving or being you know having publishers cut ties with them we've seen much more being said and a lot more people talking about injustice and also just the inherent like biases that we do have in our games and a lot more approach to you know even within Tammany Hall how do you approach a game that's revolving around a potentially sensitive topic and it sounds like they did a good job of addressing that and realizing that. And I think that's something we're going to see a lot more of over the coming year as well. We're going to have a lot more people being willing to step forward and be honest about their experiences. And maybe just in general, the hobby being willing to take kind of a look at itself and realize that the way we approach questionable concepts in our games and how we address them does actually say more than just about the mechanics of the game itself and it is actually important i think i think that's going to be a kind of a recurring theme of the next year or so to that point ian i think like this entire issue of some of these social issues you've seen 
rising to the forefront in gaming, whether it's the content of games themselves and are they representing people, groups, and genders and other identities in a, in a sensitive and diverse way, or increasingly in the last few weeks we've seen hyper we've seen a lot of uh, focus on the behavior and the ethical uh, actions of uh, board game designers and publishers and other people in the industry. All of this, I think, is connected to the growth of the hobby. The board game hobby is more diverse. There's a larger and more diverse group of players at the table, and uh, they want this hobby to be in tune with the times and to reflect their values and to reflect who they are. Uh, There are more women playing. There are more people of color playing. There are more uh, people of different sexual orientations and identities and gender identities playing. And that's wonderful. And that's what we need. And the reality is that the publishers and the designers who get that and make the needed adjustments to make their games feel relevant to those audiences are the ones that are going to thrive in the years to come. And folks that are slow in the uptake on that and they don't understand that certain types of humor or uh, certain types of representation are just not going to cut anymore those folks are going to increasingly struggle there's also going to be increased expectations that people's you know that that prominent figures in the industry conduct themselves in a way and how they treat people and how they treat their employees that also the 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 community i think rightfully demands that that also makes you feel good because you want to support a company that you feel like has good value so i think there's some real i don't want to call it growing pains because the growth is really good but i do think there needs to be i think there's a a bit of a a shock uh on the part of some people in the industry who aren't really realizing how much their audience has changed and we and uh and the folks that get it are going to grow and thrive and that's um i think that's good Absolutely. I was, I was going to say basically exactly that, that, you know, one of the, one of the benefits of the growth of the board gaming market and also just as a hobby, the growth of, of, you know, there's more people and more, I don't want to say different, that feels pejorative. And the, the growth of having more varied people uh, present at every table means you know it, it it's i have heard from various people you know there there are some real trash people in the board game industry and for years you know it's it's a small market that traditionally has been dominated by straight white men and the types of people who generally aren't that bothered by some sorts of accusations and we're seeing this this explosive growth and we're seeing a lot more people who are who now feel like they are given a chance to speak out about things and that that can only bring positive to the industry you know it's it's been been remarkable and inspiring seeing people who has stepped forward and either you know I, I honestly I, I'm, I'm really more you know the, the the ones that that really draw my attention are you know like Isaac Childress with Frosthaven where he said hey uh, I decided that maybe I should ask someone you know about how I'm using certain words like race and they told me that was messed up, and I didn't realize because I'm only me. 
I've been very impressed with how Isaac in general has been approaching things. He seems like he's just done a really good job of recognizing where he is and especially the influential place that he is. But just, you know, people people realizing that there's a lot more than just one type of person playing games now. And we need to make sure that we're catering to all of them and that we're understanding all of their perspectives as well. Um, and it, I mean, again, because the more companies acknowledge things that they have done wrong and acknowledge how they can improve going forward, that's only going to bring more people into the flock. You know, that's representation matters. And I, I just think it's really cool that, that that's we're, we're kind of seeing the, the beginnings of, of this movement of change in the industry. But on a, a significantly less serious note, uh, moving forward, I, I really think something that we're going to see in the board game industry, and this is something that uh, Eric Lang has talked about on Twitter, is we're going to quit seeing games race to the bottom with price. I think we're going to see a real dramatic shift. It's not going to happen all at once, but board games are going to quit being 40 50 60 dollars and they're going to start being 80 90 and 100 dollars i think that sometime within the next and this is a little bit more far scoped i i'm going to predict that within the next five years we're going to see a north american based board game manufacturing company because right now if you want anything other than like Cards, you can get cards all day. If you want, if your game is just cards in a box, you can get that manufactured stateside tomorrow. But right now, every game that you see at the store that has any sort of, compl- you know, molded minis, uh, shaped plastic pieces, custom dice, by and large, that's all made overseas. And I think with the, the issues that we've been having this year, with you know international logistics and and all of the the, the problems that we've seen with that uh, even though it will cost more i think that we're going to see at least one company step up and they're going to start manufacturing games on this continent and again it's going to be more expensive and i think that's this is part of what's going to be it's either going to be a drive for or a response to a rise in board game prices and I, I really think somebody's going to be willing to stick their neck out. Some venture capital firm is going to be able to, to finance the billion dollars it's going to cost to start this factory up. And we're going to see a slow shift of more and more things in the board gaming world be made, at least for us in North America, locally. That's wild, because actually my last prediction that I had was the total opposite. <laughs> So we'll let's have dueling predictions. <laughs> let's have dueling predictions. Because yes. I read Eric Lane's comments about the rising cost of board games, and I thought to myself, I, I think the I think there's a real chance that the game the industry could correct the other way in two ways. I think I think that will be uh, because of rising costs. I think savvy a savvy publisher that can strip down components and put cheaper. Uh, smaller box games into the marketplace can do really, really well. And I think we've already seen a couple of breakout hits that did that, like Parks and, to a certain extent, Root, which used very minimalist wood components 
those were really big games that didn't have to go down that route of like epic plastic minis and giant boxes. So I actually think my prediction for the year next year, maybe even the next two years in board games is uh, a return to smaller, more humble games. The return to the wooden game component as a more common thing. I think sustainability, shipping costs, a lot of that is going to be in play of that. But also just because I think if you can get a game at like a $40 price point and get it on the shelf at Target, you're going to make a lot more money than the folks that are still shipping $70, games uh, with enough plastic to choke a horse. So I don't know. In response to that, not not arguing, just, just bringing up, you know, uh, so you have not, you are not a, a Kickstarter person. Um, several years ago, there was a huge thing for micro games on Kickstarter. It, seemed, it felt like almost every publisher that was on Kickstarter was either making a new game or some variant twist version of their game. And they were, you know, it was, it was $12 or sometimes even $5, you know, the $5 game would come in an envelope. You might even have to actually cut pieces out, you know, almost almost yeah. returning to the, the war games of old. And, you know, if, if, if we can count kickstarter as market research the market didn't really respond those didn't really take off no one's doing that anymore i mean the only publisher that i can think of that really focuses on smaller box titles is gamel and games with their tiny epic series and even those have steadily been going up in price as the years go by to your point with trails I don't know that Trails would have been as popular if Parks hadn't come out first. That's a fair point. I, I think I, that... I think you guys are both on a... On a you guys are both in some ways saying a similar thing, though. A, yeah, and Aaron's gonna... being mean to me. He's not agreeing with everything that <laughs> I, I just... Well, guys, it's been good. I'll uh, see you never. Like, and, and, and you know... With rising shipping costs, you're going to have, if people want to continue making board games the same way, they're going to get more expensive. And you are going to have that because, I mean, people do want those kind of games. But I also do worry about where the hobby could end up going because I don't necessarily have the budget to yeah. buy a $150, $100 game very often. You know, maybe one, maybe even two games a year if they're going to cost that much. And so I do think you are going to see if costs do get bigger even though micro games may not have succeeded then when games cost 40 to 60 dollars i think if games start costing you know 80 to 100 dollars i think my smaller games games that are a little more pared down are going to become more successful and honestly i i do hope that there is a correction both ways because when i think about you know growing up with board games it was like a family it was a family affair we played games together and if your board games start creeping up in price, it's going to be a lot less likely for you to buy a game for the family to play if that game's 100 bucks, or if that game's you know on the higher price point. It's a lot easier to buy something cheaper as a game for people to play together. It's it's a lot more, it's a lot easier, especially if you know you just don't have as much free income to to throw around. So I really do hope we see it both ways because that's really what this is built around is people especially families and friends gathering around the table and playing games together and no matter which way things go i just hope we don't end up in a situation where it we exclude people because of what they're able to spend i mean we'll always have you know hasbro will always have candy land and 
Monopoly for twenty bucks. I, I don't think those are ever going to away going to go away. But if those are the if those are the only accessible board games for families, <laughs> what what a bleak hellscape the future has become. Uh, I think I think in general, you know, regardless of what our expectations be, I think we're all very excited for the next couple of years. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that's going to be happening. Yeah, a lot of really cool games already. I'm I'm for one, I'm very excited about the next couple of years. And that's it for episode 24, our one-year anniversary. Definitely a bit more of a meta discussion, but it is our one-year anniversary. We kind of just wanted to talk about board gaming and where it's at and how we feel about it. And hopefully you guys did enjoy that. We do appreciate how much everybody has been listening. It's been amazing to see. We definitely didn't expect this when we started a year ago, and it's been really cool. A lot of new opportunities that we didn't expect. want to give a huge thank you to Aaron for coming on, not only on this episode, but really pretty much every episode at this point. I mean, if if people don't realize at this point you are absolutely a full-time member of the crew, it's been great having you, and I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you over the past year. Someone's got to help you keep Matt in check. It's a tough job, and I don't think that even us together can really do it. Matt, I am unstoppable. <laughs> Matt, if people want to get in touch with us, where can they do that? Uh, you can find us on the Instagram at Dice Pirates. Uh, give us a follow. Check us out there. We are posting all throughout the week. Uh, with uh, some regularity uh, about the games we're playing, uh, reviews, uh, updates. We've uh, recently gotten a chance to play a cool uh, prototype game, which was exciting. You can go check that out. We had some thoughts on Journey uh, into the Beyond. And, uh, yeah, check us out. We'd love to hear from you. And if you send us a message, we'll talk back to you in real life, and we'll even be nice. Thank you, as always, for listening. Definitely stay tuned next week. There'll be another Captain's Log. We have a bunch of really exciting episodes that we do have coming out the next few weeks as well, so we're looking forward to that. If you do enjoy the podcast, definitely consider giving us a like, maybe follow us, re- leave a review. Definitely helps us a lot to get us out or just suggest us to a friend. We feel like we're getting better over time, and definitely leave your thoughts. Let us know what we can do better or what you enjoy. Let us know all of those sorts of things. Thank you, everyone, for an amazing year. Here's to the next one. Four more years. Four more years. Runebound is the best game. <laughs> <laughs>